Chapter 5 of The Life of Philip Melanchthon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Philip Melanchthon by Carl Friedrich Lederhose. Translated by Gottlob Frederick Krotel, 1826-1907. Melanchthon without Luther. As early as the summer of 1520, the Pope, upon X instigation, issued a severe bull against Luther, in which 41 propositions from his various writings were condemned, and he himself was threatened with excommunication if he should not recant. But the hero was of good courage, for he was suffering for the best cause. Eck triumphed, but the Wittenberger was not to be intimidated, and wrote the well-known severe work Against the Bull of Antichrist, and even took the bold step on the 10th of December, 1520, to cast this bull, together with the canon law and other papal writings, into the fire before the Elster Gate, in the presence of many students and doctors. Thus did he powerfully separate himself from the Roman Church and the Pope. All who preferred the better way were thus driven to decision. Melanchthon was not wanting among these better ones, as he proved by his vindication of Luther. In the meantime, Charles V had become emperor of Germany. The papal nuncios urged him to execute the bull. But this youthful monarch proceeded leisurely. He summoned a diet to Worms, where, among other matters, the difficulties of the church might also be decided. Although the papal legates endeavored to prevent Luther's summons to the Diet, they could not succeed. When parting from Melanchthon, he said, If I should return no more, and my enemies should murder me at Worms, as may very easily be the case, I conjure you, dear brother, not to neglect teaching and abiding by the truth. In the meantime, labor also for me, because I am not able to be here. You can do better than I can. Therefore, it will not be a great loss, provided you remain. The Lord still finds a learned champion in you. It is well known to all with what joyful faith Luther received the summons, and with what bold words he expressed himself in regard to it. Luther's journey to Worms and his demeanor before the emperor and the states of the empire are among the most glorious events of his own history and of the Reformation in general. Faith like that exhibited by him at this time is not often found in Israel. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. These were Luther's words. He remained faithful, and God helped him. He was removed until March 1522, for it is known that the care of the elector had sheltered him from the malice of his enemies in the silent Wartburg. During this time, Wittenberg truly seemed to be fatherless, for Melanchthon was no Luther. And yet, the burden of the Reformation rested upon the shoulders of this young man. But notwithstanding the papal bulls, and in spite of the Edict of Worms, which appeared May 26, 1521, and spoke in the papal spirit, he was not afraid to stand in the gap. He published the Acts of the Diet of Worms, and sided with the prescribed Luther. Everywhere his assistance was required, so also to give his advice in supplying the professorial chairs in the university. During this time, Arogalus, teacher of the Hebrew, 
and Justice Jonas, in the capacity of provost and professor of theology, arrived in Wittenberg. During the same year, Melanchthon published a severe work against the theologians of Paris. These had severely condemned Luther and his writings. Against these he wrote his defense of Dr. M. Luther, against the raging judgment of the Paris divines. It is one of his most cutting productions. He begins thus, Behold, Christian reader, what monstrous beasts of theologians this part of the earth, Europe, gives birth to. He expresses himself unwilling to believe that this production has emanated from Paris, because so furious a spirit breathes in it. The common people believe that Christian doctrine dwells in the high school as in its own place, but he will disregard the distinguished personages and the high rank of the university, and says, In our common Christianity, Christ's voice alone shall rule. Whoever does not hear this does not belong to Christ. The universities of Cologne and Leuven had also condemned Luther's writings, but they had not acted as crazily as the Parisians. He therefore found himself obliged to believe that the saying of those in the olden time was not altogether without foundation, that the French have no brains. They called Luther a heretic because he did not agree with the universities, the Holy Fathers, and the councils. But here Melanchthon plants himself upon the basis of the Bible, and declares this alone can be infallible, and adds, What new articles of faith do Magistri Nostri of Paris wish to add to this, perhaps their own gross ones? In this biting manner he proceeds, and in a clear, lively manner, thoroughly refutes the assertions of the Parisians. He proves the scriptures to be the only foundation of knowledge in the most triumphant manner, and then proceeds to show that Luther is standing upon the Bible, and yet does not contradict the fathers. Luther's defender proves that he is on Augustine's side in the doctrines of free will and of grace, and then goes on to show that the Parisians themselves are opposed to the fathers. He concludes thus, I wished to guard you in these things, Christian reader, in order that you may not be prejudiced against Luther by the reputation of the Sorbonne, the wisdom of which you have been able to see in one or two points. From those which I have exposed to you, you may easily guess the rest. For the Sorbonne is the Sorbonne. It will be easier for you to find Christ among the carpenters than among these people. So bravely did Melanchthon speak, and yet the position he occupied alone, during Luther's absence, depressed him so much that he felt the need of consolation. When Luther had reached the Wartburg, Melanchthon discovered it, and full of joy wrote to Wenceslas Link, Our dearest father is alive. He wishes to fold him in his arms very soon and says, Everything is going on well in the university, except that we are deprived of our father, Dr. Martinus. At another time, he wrote, our Elijah is not yet with us, but we wait and hope for him. What more shall I say? My longing for him tortures me grievously. Luther reprimanded him about this and wrote thus, Even though I should be lost, the gospel will lose nothing by that. For in that you now excel me, and follow Elijah as an Elisha, with a double portion of the Spirit, which may the Lord Jesus bestow upon you in his mercy. Amen. Already on the 12th of May, 1521, a letter of comfort arrived from Patmos, as Luther called the Wartburg. He says in it, And what are you doing, my Philip? 
Do you pray for me, that this my involuntary concealment may redound to the greater glory of God? In conclusion, he says, Here I sit, and all day long place before me the picture of the church, and lament my insensibility that I am not drenched in tears, and with my eyes, as with fountains of tears, weep for the slain of my people. But there is no one who will arise and cleave to the Lord, or oppose himself, as a wall for the house of Israel in these latter days of his wrath. Yes, kingdom of the Pope, thou art worthy of this latter time. God be merciful unto us. Do you then, as a servant of the word, stand in the midst and guard the walls and gates of Jerusalem until they come upon you also? You understand your calling and your gifts. I pray for you before all other things, if, as I do not doubt, my prayer availeth anything. Do you likewise. Let us bear our burden together. We stand alone in the battle. After me, they will fall upon thee. Melanchthon needed such encouragement in his present position. For as it has often been, so was it now in Wittenberg, that enemies are less dangerous than friends. With all his storming, Luther yet proceeded calmly. It was his primary object to lay on every side the deep foundation of justification by grace through faith, and he thought less of the finishing of the building. He permitted all those things to remain which did not flatly contradict the word of God. But his friends in Wittenberg did not think so soberly and prudently. They wished to overturn the structure of the Roman church by rapid assault, and to erect something entirely new. Every particle of the Romish leaven was to be exterminated from the public worship of God. First of all, Luther's fellow conventuals, the Augustinian monks of Wittenberg, led by the preacher Gabriel Zwilling, appeared with a resolution to omit the daily private mass and to distribute the sacrament in both kinds. When the elector heard of this, he inquired at once into the particulars of the matter and appointed a commission to which Melanchthon belonged to investigate the whole matter. The report of this commission was decidedly in favor of those who encouraged these innovations. After exhibiting the anti-scriptural character of the Mass and the denial of the cup to the laity and saying, it is certain that the abuse of the Mass is one of the greatest and most abominable abuses in the world. They pray the elector to take hold of the matter earnestly and speedily to abolish the abuse of the Masses in his own dominions and not to care if he should be abused as a bohemian or heretic. It is impossible to avoid reviling. They appealed to the elector's conscience, and reminded him of the great day of reckoning, but it also gave liberty to conscience. If anyone wished to celebrate Mass alone, but the elector was not satisfied with this opinion, as he generally preferred to act prudently, he considered the step of the Augustinians too hasty. He thought that the opinion of so few persons could not be decisive, and he also clearly foresaw the consequences should the overthrow of private masses put an end to the legacies for this purpose. He communicated these views to the commission in writing through Dr. Beyer. They returned an excellent reply, full of a joyful faith, which we regret not to be able to print entire. The reply said, Although we are the smallest party, the truth of the divine word, which is above all angels and creatures, because it is clearly revealed in the gospel and in the apostle Paul, shall not therefore be despised. For the smallest party ever received and preached the truth, and so it will remain to the end of the world. 
It concludes thus, Let no one be offended, because this matter will cause great offense. For Christ, as it is written, came into the world, and was given to those who believe in him, and his word, that they might improve themselves in him to obtain eternal life. But to those who do not receive him and his word, he has been given and set for a stumbling block, that they may die forever. Luther also, in his work of the abuse of the mass, expressed himself in favor of the omission of private masses. The elector now permitted the matter to take its own course. The movement which had commenced in the Augustinian cloister in Wittenberg communicated itself likewise to those in Meissen and Thuringia. In the month of December of this year, a provincial assembly of Augustinians from different quarters was convened. Their resolutions contemplated the abolition of secret masses, cloistral confinement, and other anti-scriptural customs. At this time appeared Luther's publication Concerning Priestly and Monastic Vows, which gave the movement scriptural progress, when a minister, Bernardi, called Feldkirch, relinquished his celibacy and defended this step, Melanchthon was not afraid to step forward to defend the severely assaulted man, and to renounce a doctrine which the Bible terms a doctrine of devils, and is yet held fast by the papal chair with the utmost tenacity. But other events occurred in Wittenberg which might have done the greatest injury to the good cause of the Reformation had not the Lord of the Church watched over it. A fanatical spirit had arisen in the city of Zwickau. Among other things, he rejected infant baptism and boasted of the possession of supernatural revelations. At Christmas, three of these fanatics came to Wittenberg. These were two cloth weavers named Nicholas Storch and Thomas Marx, the third being Marcus Stubner who claimed to belong to the learned. In Wittenberg, the private teacher, Martin Solarius, joined them. They also met with Melanchthon, who had even received the chief spokesman Stubner into his house. He did not possess the deep insight into human nature which distinguished Luther. He, therefore, did not at once declare himself opposed to this perverted movement. December 27, 1521, he gave notice of this to the elector and says, I have conversed with them myself, and they declare most wonderful things concerning themselves, viz. that God with a loud voice sent them forth to teach, that they enjoy most intimate conversations with God, behold future events, and that they are, in short, prophetic and apostolical men. I cannot describe how all of this moves me. That spirits possess them seems to be established by many reasons, concerning which no one can easily form an opinion but Martinus, Luther. If the gospel and the honor and peace of the church are in any danger, it is absolutely necessary that these people should have an interview with Martinus, especially as they appeal to him. I would not write anything to your electoral grace about this matter, did not the importance of the matter require that steps should be taken in time. For it is needful for us to be on our guard, lest the devil entrap us. Spalatin relates that the elector expressed himself about this matter very humbly in these words. This is a very important matter, which I, as a layman, do not understand. Now God has bestowed considerable possessions upon me and my brother. If I understood these matters, I would rather take a staff in my hands and fly than act knowingly against God. However, the elector summoned Melanchthon and Amsdorf to Cretin. There, Haubold von Einseidel and Spalatin questioned them further concerning these matters.
They expressed themselves to the same effect as Melanchthon had done in his report. Again, Luther's judgment was solicited. In a letter of Luther's called forth by Melanchthon, he judged very correctly of the spirits of Zwickau. He requires letter and seal for their public ministry. As to their spirit, it would only be necessary to inquire whether they had experienced spiritual conflicts and divine birth, death, and hell. He proceeds to express himself in a very decided manner in reference to infant baptism, and concludes thus, I have all along expected that the devil would create this ulcer, but it was not to be done by the papists. He desires to bring about this great schism among us and ours, but Christ will soon trample him beneath our feet. But these fanatics had already gained adherence. Among them was the well-known Dr. Karlstadt, a man of a legal, unsettled mind, who, with all his boasting of liberty, knew nothing of true evangelical liberty. He commenced a sad work in Wittenberg. Many students joined him. They abolished private masses, burned the images, destroyed the altars, abolished auricular confession, dropped the hems and ceremonies of the church, went to communion without previous confession, and did many other things of a similar character, without applying to the constituted authorities, without caring for those who were offended at their course. They carried everything before them by storm, appealing to their liberty, the first commandment, and the Holy Ghost, which they possessed. Whoever did not side with them was denounced as an heretic. This was too much for the youthful professor. The burden was too great. And he longed for the faith and strength of that man who, under these circumstances, could not endure to remain longer in his Patmos. Luther addressed a capital letter to the Wittenbergians, in which he most clearly points out to them the true point of view from which Karlstadt's innovation was to be examined. But Melanchthon ardently desired Luther's return to Wittenberg. His return was absolutely necessary, too, yet the elector would not hear of it. At last, on the 7th of March, 1522, Luther escaped from the Wartburg. Two letters addressed to the elector, and which really display an apostolical strength of faith, paved and prepared the way. He was received with acclamations in Wittenberg, and when he now began, from the first Sunday in Lent until the Sunday Reminiscence, to preach eight sermons against these innovations in a convincing, winning manner, all rejoiced, and the turbulent waves again grew calm. Gabriel was convinced, but Karlstadt remained hardened. But the fanatics again gathered together secretly and endeavored to spread themselves. The desire was expressed that Luther might have an interview with them. Although reluctantly, he at last resolved to hear Marcus, one of their leaders. Melanchthon was present at the interview. Marcus was accompanied by the impetuous Salarius and several others. When Luther pointed out to them that their pretensions were not founded upon the holy scriptures, but were really the inventions of over-curious minds, or perhaps even foolish and hurtful inspirations of a deceitful spirit, Salarius behaved like a madman. They departed with curses, but Luther calmly said, That God, whom I worship and serve, will know right well how to restrain your gods, so that none of these things will come to pass. We may well conceive how relieved Melanchthon must have felt, when the proper man of the Reformation, again, stood in the breach. End of chapter 5